Hey y'all, just want to give you a heads up that this episode touches on the topics of physical, mental, and sexual abuse. Not depictions of it, but discussions of it. Listener discretion is advised. The host and creator of The Twilight Zone, Rod Serling, penned an episode in 1960 about a quiet suburban street like any other, until one summer day when residents witness a strange flying object zip across the sky and vanish beneath the horizon. This is Maple Street on a Saturday afternoon. Maple Street in the last calm and reflective moment before the monsters came. Within seconds of the object's flyover, every house on Maple Street loses power, the phone lines go dead, and the cars refuse to start. The neighbors gather outside, and two of them volunteer to walk into town in search of answers. But as they turn to go, the shout of a young boy stops them in their tracks. They won't let you leave, he says. The space aliens. He's read about this before, this exact situation in one of his comic books. That thing in the sky was their spaceship, coming to pick up the alien scouts who are already here, on Maple Street. They take over people's bodies. They pretend to be us, look and sound just like us, but they're not us. They wear our skin like costumes, he says. They could be anyone, even you. The adults in the crowd roll their eyes and tell the boy to run on home now. He's been reading too many comic books. It was just a meteor or a sunspot or something. Nothing to worry about. Surely there's a logical explanation for all this. More logical than body-snatching spacemen, anyway. But all it takes is a few short moments of uncertainty for coincidences to start looking like patterns, for a friendly face to start looking more like a mask. And once the seed of suspicion is planted, all it takes is a few short hours for the normal, everyday people of Maple Street to devolve into a paranoid, murderous lynch mob, for a quiet, suburban street like any other to go up in flames. In the end, the boy was half right. It was an alien spaceship, but the residents of Maple Street were, and always had been, very human, just as the aliens expected them to be. They didn't need body snatchers or invasions to bring the people of Earth to their knees. All they had to do was turn out the lights for a few short hours and let humanity do the rest. It's been 60 years since the Monsters Are Due on Maple Street first aired on TV, but it still feels familiar. And it might be because Serling's story isn't just a satire of McCarthyism in its own time. It's a cautionary tale about a cycle that we seem doomed to repeat again and again, like a recurring nightmare. You expect it. You can feel it slink in behind your eyes in that momentary otherworld between wakefulness and dreams. And the only thing more frightening than the nightmare itself is the knowing. Knowing that it's coming and knowing that you can't stay awake forever. We tend to think of Salem as an aberration, a one-off historical fluke instead of what it really was, the beginning of an American tradition. As a wise space alien once said, the world is full of maple streets. In his 1972 book about moral panics, sociologist Stanley Cohen noted that, when the media reports on deviant behavior, they construct a narrative which features a clear villain. That villain, the antagonist of our crowdsourced tales of social subversion, is what Cohen calls the folk devil. Often the harbinger and always the scapegoat, the folk devil is the living personification of unwelcome social change and all that comes with it. Sometimes it's imaginary. Sometimes it's an outsider, a newcomer or foreigner to the established culture. Sometimes it's an outcast from within. Those who dress or act in some new or different way that's difficult for the average person to understand with only a passing glance. It's a vestigial quirk from back in our hunter-gatherer days, when our survival depended on snap decisions of fight or flight. Of course, these days we don't have to worry about whether to flee in terror if we see someone wearing weird clothes. 
but the instinct is still there inside us and just as strong as it was 10,000 years ago. Also, our brains are kinda lazy, and the more predictable things are, the less energy they require to process. That's why ambiguity and uncertainty tend to make people feel uncomfortable or even angry. Anytime our expectations get upended or we're faced with something unknown, our brains scramble to fill in the blanks as quickly as possible with whatever's lying around. The easier, the better. Unfortunately, fear tends to come a whole lot cheaper than truth. On an individual level, the folk devil is a threat to your personal safety, to your town, to your particular group within a broader group. On an institutional level, it's a breach of the fortress walls, a weakness in our presumptions of privilege and projections of power. If the status quo can't be maintained, then it must be enforced. And those who see themselves as being on the right side of culture, from the church lady to the upper echelons of capital and the state, will do, say, and believe whatever is required to preserve it. Flight, to them, is not an option. Of course, we can resist and overcome our base instincts, and most of us, thankfully, do it every day. But none of us are truly immune. Something someday might come along that requires more of your brain than just a passing glance. And if the circumstances are just right, it'll drag you down the path of least resistance. Grabbing a torch, finding a witch, and letting your humanity do the rest. You might have noticed that this episode took us a couple of months to make, and that's because it's been a struggle, to put it mildly, to distill all this down without leaving a lot of important and interesting stuff on the cutting room floor. Thanks to y'all's feedback, we know two or three hour long episodes are a bit much. So yeah, there's going to be a part four in this uh, three-part series. Last time we said we'd be heading down to Austin for this episode, but we've first got to take a pit stop at the Bucky's bathroom of historical context. Sometimes you gotta risk it for the brisket. No, no not ever. No, you, you, it's you really pretty don't. terrible. When it comes to moral panics, the ritual is always the same. By way of newsroom or rumor mill, it starts with a singular narrative defining the folk devil and making him easy to recognize. Next, the facts get exaggerated, distorted, or invented altogether. And then come the predictions, the accusations, the crackdowns, the paranoia, and the alien eyes behind every human mask. You might have noticed the pattern, and we noticed a few patterns of our own, too. Maybe they're just coincidences. Maybe they're not. Maybe there are no coincidences. We're just asking questions. Maybe you should try it sometime, mainstream media. We do our own research. Really, we actually do that. So open wide for the red pill, sore boy, because we're about to get demonetized. That's right. Where we go on, we go all to Patreon to support this show before the fact check Gestapo cucks us straight to get Bo Zucker jail. We don't know the meaning of the word censorship. Literally. Let's get to work. So get this, folks. So folk devils come and go and evolve over time, and there's always one or two flitting through the shadows of our cultural imagination at any given time. Who's fun in these shadows? Some stick around for years, some fizzle out after a month or two, some some lay dormant for decades or even centuries, only to reemerge as some new form. Not all folk devils spark a moral panic, but when they do, it tends to be some very interesting moments in history. Stick with us, patriots. Trust the plan. Buy our supplements. Political scientists. Scientists can't be trusted, except for right now, because it bolsters our theory, okay? So it's fine. Anyway, most of them agree that America's undergone a major political realignment every 30 years or so, and it's been that way since the beginning of the Republic. Y'all better brace yourselves, because we're about to spill enough tea to fluoridate and feminize every damn frog in Boston Harbor. Ah! 1776, America declares independence from the tyranny of the British crown. 1800, the Democratic Republicans beat the Federalists, effectively establishing our two-party system. 
1828, the Federalists are over, and Andrew Jackson's populism divides the Demrep party into the Democrats and the Whigs. 1860, the Whigs go bust, and Abe Lincoln's Republican Party takes over, and there's a big honking boogaloo between the states. 1896, McKinley and Bryant split the electorate along class lines. We're talking gold standard, silver standard, panic on Wall Street, outside dark money, and elections for the first time. Soros! 1932, FDR's New Deal Coalition. No Deal! 1964, Civil Rights and Segregation. 1994. Hold on, we'll get to that later. You don't have all day, but I do now that my wife left me. That's alpha male vitality! My kids won't even talk to me anymore. Let me tell you folks, realignments don't happen all at once. Sometimes they take a decade or more to solidify. And presidential elections are just one piece of the puzzle. Just the easy points of demarcation in the 30-year cycles. And politics isn't the only thing that happens to coincide with major war panics. There are no coincidences. Happenstance is a globalist lie. Serendipity is a gorgeous stripper. And we're getting married just as soon as I clear out her Amazon wish list. All right, all right, all right. Now let me tell you, let me tell you. We call our theory the five pillars of panic. No relation to the five pillars of Islam. That's just a coincidence, okay, folks? Sometimes there are coincidences. The pillars don't always appear in this order. Some precipitate a panic, some exacerbate it, but they're all there. Every time. Most of the time. Pretty much at least a lot of the time. Truth is a feeling, and it makes me want to take off my shirt! Stand down there, <laughs> digital soldier. They can't get a taste of that deregulated Angus beefcake until we give them the five pillars of panic for the political realignment of the 1930s. Pillar one, economic, <clears throat> economic uncertainty. Think Great Depression. Pillar two, revolution in media. Think radio. Pillar three, controversial science. Think eugenics. You know I do. Hide your power level, man. Pillar four, social progress and backlash. Think Midwestern populism and American Nazi sympathy. Pillar 5, folk devils in politics and conspiracism. Think Red Scare. I think about it all the time. But our story begins today with the next realignment. Demarcation point, 1964. It's by far the most protracted realignment to date, but it probably wouldn't have taken as long if Watergate never happened. That's right, you heard it here first, folks. Watergate never happened. Amazon, WAPO, so unfair. So we're done with the Alex Jones thing now, right? Oh yeah, definitely. For now. Shill. Pillar 1. Economic uncertainty. The 60s weren't bad economically, but the 70s were brutal. Nixon took America off the gold standard. Probably the right move at the time, but it was like ripping the band-aid off a domino effect. Wages stagnated in 1973 and stayed that way ever since. The economy was bogged down by stagflation, the historically unprecedented combination of high inflation and high unemployment. There was a nationwide oil shortage, and the average American worker was straight up not having a good time. Pillar 2. Revolution in Media By 1960, the majority of American households now owned a television, and direct mailing became a popular and effective way to disseminate political messaging, raise money, and organize, especially for fringe groups that mainstream outlets refused to platform. Pillar 3. Controversial Science In the 1970s, Freudian psychology was making a comeback in spite of its many flaws and problematic ideas. With it came a surge of interest in recovered memory therapy, the practice of hypnotizing a patient in hopes of uncovering hidden memories of trauma that the patient never knew were there. It sounds at least kinda sciencey to lay people like us, but most psychologists today say it's pseudoscientific garbage. 
It's a lot like a magic show mentalist doing a cold reading on a volunteer from the audience. Except in recovered memory therapy, the mentalist isn't in on the trick. There hadn't been a lot of research into the nature of memory at the time, and a fair amount of psychologists were open to the idea that our brains record our lived experiences exactly the way they happened, and with proper therapy, they can be accessed and replayed like security camera footage. Of course, that's not actually how it works. Our memories are more like consumer-grade VHS tapes that lose a little quality every time they're played. They wear out over time, get grainy, warped, or damaged, and sometimes they get taped over altogether. Again, science isn't our strong suit, so we watched some PBS videos made for middle schoolers which were surprisingly informative while also being dumbed down just enough for dudes like us to understand. According to the nice teacher man on the TV, it's shockingly easy for our brains to generate false memories, sometimes even easier than it is to create real ones. And as Alex Jonesy as it sounds, it can be just as easy, if the conditions are right, to plant fake memories in others that are indistinguishable from the real thing. As psychologist Robin Dawes explains it, quote, Memory is basically a reconstructive process, a way to make sense of the present. The fit between our memories and stories enhances our belief in them. Often, however, it is the story that creates the memory rather than vice versa. Like our natural fear of ambiguity, the love of stories and storytelling is hardwired into our brains to help us make sense of the world with as little effort as possible. It's why we're so easily fooled and so often wrong and why it's so difficult for us to recognize, much less accept. Recovered memory therapy was controversial from the start and weighed down by a hefty burden of proof, making it a deeply polarizing issue among mental health professionals. The skeptics didn't just find it flawed or questionable, they emphatically opposed it, calling it utterly absurd and potentially dangerous. And they had multiple studies to back them up. That didn't leave much room for a middle ground, and to embrace it was to put your reputation and your career on the line. Therapists willing to take that kind of risk had to be true believers, and with so much at stake they were extremely eager and kind of desperate to prove that recovered memory therapy was a real, effective treatment. And the only way to do that was to push the therapy on as many patients as possible and successfully recover as many traumatic memories as they could find. You can probably see how that might be a problem, but we'll come back to that. Pillar 4. Social Progress and Backlash in November 1977, more than 20,000 women from all over the country gathered at the Sam Houston Coliseum in Houston, Texas for the National Women's Conference. It was the first of its kind to be endorsed by the White House and a landmark event for the women's liberation movement that helped elevate second wave feminism to national prominence. Speeches were given by people like Coretta Scott King, Gloria Steinem, Maxine Waters, Maya Angelou, and more, and First Ladies Rosalind Carter, Betty Ford, and Lady Bird Johnson were all in attendance. It was the first time that issues like battered women's shelters, childcare, disability rights, post-row abortion access, and sex education had been given such prominent media coverage, and it was the first time intersectionality, lesbian rights, and the interests of women of color were addressed in such a large public forum at all. Obviously, a lot of issues on the agenda were controversial at the time, and many very much still are, but front and center was something that was never supposed to be controversial, the Equal Rights Amendment. Equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. That's it. That's all it said. If ratified, it would be the shortest and simplest constitutional amendment to date. In 1972, after 50 years on the congressional backburner, the ERA finally passed the House and Senate, and all it needed was 38 states to ratify it, which seemed like an easy slam dunk. 
It had the support of three quarters of Americans at the time, not to mention strong bipartisan support in Congress. President Nixon even supported it, and then Ford, and then Carter. Five years had passed by the time the National Women's Conference came to Houston, and the 1979 deadline was inching ever closer, but the ERA's ratification was still short 10 states. So what's a dang holdup, you ask? Well, according to historians and most of the attendees at the conference, the holdup happened to be across town at that very moment, hosting a rival conference of her own, one that boasted as many as 15,000 conservative women who'd converged on the Houston Astrodome to oppose, undermine, and destroy everything the National Women's Conference stood for. But the pro-life, pro-family rally, as it was called, reserved the bulk of their boundless ire for the Equal Rights Amendment which isn't surprising given that the rally's organizer was the matriarch of anti-feminism and one and only hold-up herself, Phyllis Schlafly. Schlafly was a devout Catholic, devoted wife and mother of six, and champion of what she called traditional family values, namely the subordination of the fairer sex to the men in their lives. But her public persona as the quintessential Midwestern housewife was nothing more than a branding exercise, a facade that she'd meticulously crafted, rigorously maintained, and carefully guarded. I mean, it would have been kind of hard for her to sell the anti-feminist agenda if people saw her for what she really was, one of the most ambitious, shrewd, and influential political operatives in American history. Schlafly cut her political teeth on Red Scare propaganda before pivoting into campaign management, where she overcame her handicap of being a woman in a man's industry by upending expectations, talking like a man, and being ridiculously good at what she did. She even tried running for Congress herself in 1952, with the financial backing of everyone's favorite Texan creeper, H.L. Hunt, but she lost in a landslide. Schlafly would go on to be an elected delegate at every Republican national convention until the day she died, but she'd never achieve her goal of elected office, even after two more attempts. Always the bridesmaid, never the congresswoman. But that didn't stop her. At the 1960 RNC, she led a so-called revolt of moral conservatives against the party's support for racial desegregation. It was a shocking show of force for a fringe faction of racists, and a shot across the bow to the GOP establishment Next time, they'd be aiming for the heart. Four years later, the Texas RNC launched a campaign to recruit Arizona Senator Barry Goldwater to run against establishment liberal Nelson Rockefeller for the Republican nomination. Political historians consider that Dallas-based initiative to be the reason Goldwater even entered the race at all, and some consider it the true beginning of the infamous Southern strategy. Side note, if anyone ever tells you that the Southern strategy wasn't a thing, just tell them to Google Lee Atwater interview 1981 and maybe warn them that it's not safe for work. Or don't. Goldwater's opposition to welfare programs and labor unions piqued the interest of white Southern conservatives, but it was his vote against the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that made him into a populist icon. In all fairness, Goldwater claimed his opposition to civil rights was purely a Tenth Amendment beef, not a race thing, but no one else seemed to take it that way. Southern segregationists, a reliably Democratic voting bloc at the time, ate it up, while the business-friendly liberal wing of the GOP watched in horror. And the NAACP, of which Goldwater was, surprisingly, a card-carrying member, publicly disowned him, making it the first time the organization had ever taken sides in a political race. And instead of rethinking his entire life, Goldwater decided to take the path of least resistance, and leaned into his new brand as an unelectable extremist. But two things happened in California that would push Goldwater out of the fringes and into the mainstream. The first was a rousing endorsement speech from Hollywood actor Ronald Reagan. Best known at the time for witch-hunting commies in the Screen Actors Guild and co-starring with a chimpanzee in a movie called Bedtime for Bonzo. 
and the second was a book called A Choice, Not an Echo, written by the one and only holdup herself, Phyllis Schlafly. While the book was ostensibly an argument for Goldwater's nomination, it read like a conspiratorial screed about secret kingmakers who controlled the GOP from shadowy, smoke-filled rooms. The book was panned by critics and had more than a few echoes of The Protocols of the Elders of Zion, a 1903 hoax purporting to be an expose of the evil Jewish cabal that secretly controls the world. Schlafly's book wasn't explicitly anti-Semitic, but she did make a lot of references to well-financed internationalist elites and cited Henry Kissinger, who is Jewish, as a prime example. She also accused him of having dual loyalty, another anti-Semitic trope. None of that is really surprising, though, given her involvement with the John Birch Society, a secretive club for far-right extremists founded in 1958 by Robert Welch. Welch and the Birchers were obsessed with the Illuminati and believed that literally everything they didn't like was a communist conspiracy to destroy America. And we mean everything. President Eisenhower? Communist. Fluoride? Communist poison. The Vietnam War? Communist 5D chess. Basic human rights? Communist plot to spark race riots and a second civil war. Both the US and Soviet governments are controlled by the same furtive conspiratorial cabal of internationalist, greedy bankers, and corrupt politicians. Welch wrote, If left unexposed, the traitors inside the US government would betray the country's sovereignty to the United Nations for a collectivist New World Order, managed by a one-world socialist government. Stop us if you've heard this one before. Conservatives in both parties went out of their way to distance themselves from the Birchers. Even Ayn Rand called it childishly naive and superficial, which is saying something. According to William F. Buckley's biographer, he was starting to worry that, quote, With the John Birch Society growing so rapidly, the right-wing upsurge in the country could take an ugly, even fascist turn, rather than leading toward the kind of conservatism that National Review promotes. But like we said in our series, Wizards of Crazy Water, that was a war Buckley lost. Deranged conspiracism and ultranationalism had found their foothold in American conservatism, their candidate in Barry Goldwater, and their mouthpiece in Phyllis Schlafly. She denied being a bircher, of course. She totally was. And claimed to be printing every copy of A Choice Not an Echo all by herself in her husband's garage whenever she found a free moment between diaper changes. In reality, it was a large-scale operation carried out by the Birchers, using shell companies to obscure their involvement. The book would go on to sell more than 3 million copies, but more importantly, the Birchers mailed 300,000 of them directly to California voters right before the Republican primary, and it paid off bigly. In a shocking upset, Goldwater beat out Rockefeller for the GOP nomination, becoming the first Jewish nominee for president in American history. And first ever Republican to earn the endorsement of the KKK. God damn it. He still lost to LBJ that November, by one of the largest margins in American history. But Republicans did win states in the Deep South for the first time ever. All it cost them was 94% of the non-white vote. The influx of black voters to the Democratic Party was pushing the party to the left, and the consequent mass exodus of segregationist Dixiecrats like Strom Thurmond to the GOP pushed that party even further to the right. It had been 30 years since the Republicans held the White House, and change was in the air. Fast forward to 1968. A lot had changed in a few short years. The squares were freaking out about the hippies with their free love and cheap drugs, and the media was running nonstop B-roll of race riots and burning flags, burning bras, and burning draft cards on loop to scare up ratings. If there was ever a moment to unite American conservatives under the GOP tent, it was then. 
Richard Nixon, really a standard issue moderate at the time, themed his campaign around law and order and painted his opposition as permissive liberals who hated America and just wanted to watch it burn. And since the Democrats decided to run a centrist establishment dweeb in the face of unprecedented youth progressivism, Nixon won. Consider that a reminder of just how loudly history can echo. We wrote that line before the election, but it still holds up. Nixon got his second chance at the presidency that year by channeling the same populist resentment and rage Goldwater did, just with a little polish around the edges. There we go. There's your next echo. Nixon managed to turn the southern battle cry of states' rights into a GOP bumper sticker slogan, which is a pretty seismic shift for the party of Lincoln. But the southern strategy alone wouldn't be enough. The influence of second-wave feminism was growing, and you can't win elections if 51% of the electorate thinks you want to chain them to the kitchen stove. But that's where Phyllis Schlafly comes in. In 1972, the year the ERA was sent out for ratification, Schlafly launched a campaign called Stop ERA, an awkward acronym for Stop Taking Our Privileges ERA. Nice. She argued that equality under the law would, quote, take away the special protection that the Christian tradition of chivalry and the right to be supported and protected by men provides. It was a slippery slope, she said, to unisex bathrooms, women in the military, and, quote, the horrors of homosexual marriage. Conservative white men in both parties embraced her, probably without asking consent, and the Republican Party made her their official spokesperson on, quote, women's issues. Schlafly's message resonated with a lot of upper-middle-class white women who largely benefited from the status quo of Christian patriarchy, and they weren't keen on giving it up just so a bunch of hairy-legged harlots could go play businessman. Like the old saying goes, I got mine, so swish swish. Ironically, Schlafly's movement gave them something they'd never had before, the ability to organize, speak their minds, and be heard on political issues, free from the input and obstruction of men. It gave them a taste of true political power, of feminism, and they used it to keep other women from doing the same. Schlafly saw the new political realignment coming from miles away. The omens were all there, if you knew where to look. The birth rate was falling. The divorce rate had doubled in the past 10 years. In 1972, the birth control pill had become legal for unmarried women. Title IX was enacted the same year, and Roe v. Wade was decided a year later. Women had even taken to wearing pants, in public. All of that coincided with an anti-cult movement sparked by the Manson family murders and the founding of Anton LaVey's Church of Satan. In reality, the church was just an innocuous Ayn Rand fan club for goth kids who wanted to piss off Christians, but their targets didn't get the joke. After all, the literal belief in angels and demons was trending up in the polls, and conditions were ripe for a fundamentalist revival. As the New York Times put it, it was far easier to redirect our anxiety about changing moors towards Satan or his minions on Earth than to rescind no-fault divorce laws or convince women to quit their jobs. Pillar 5. Folk Devil Politics and Conspiracism In the wake of the dueling conventions in Houston, the feminists managed to secure a three-year extension to the ERA's deadline for ratification, and their efforts to raise awareness of child abuse were especially well-received. It seemed like it could be a stepping stone issue they could use to bring the public around on some of their other positions. Phyllis Schlafly, however, saw it as a perfect opportunity to flip the script. She and her followers co-opted the child advocacy message for their own, effectively burning the feminists' most promising bridge to a national dialogue on class, race, and domestic violence. Protecting children was universally popular, but giving a shit about adult women? Not so much. 
The tactic worked, and in one fell swoop, Schlafly managed to undermine the momentum of second-wave feminism and turn anti-feminism into a legit political force. And Jerry Falwell, evangelical preacher and lifelong pro-segregation activist, was taking notes. Segregation was a lost cause at this point. Majority opinion had shifted, so Falwell was searching for a new pet cause he could exploit to rally voters around the status quo. He and his partner, Paul Weyrich, knew good and well that the Republicans would never win another election again if they couldn't get women back on their side. Evangelical women had once been at the forefront of the segregationist cause, and they once again seemed ready and eager to jump into the political fray. In 1979, they formed a group called the Moral Majority to bring the fire and brimstone back to American churches and bring politics back to the pulpit. They took advantage of Schlafly's movement and her tactics to bring together resentful segregationists, Bercher conspiracists, anti-government capitalists, and Christian fundamentalists into a united and codependent political coalition. The plan was to leave single-issue voters with no choice but to support the whole of the GOP agenda, even if they disagreed with everything else that it stood for. Spoiler alert, it worked. The Moral Majority made their debut during a freedom rally at the Dallas Convention Center, and seemingly overnight became the largest conservative lobbying group of the 1980s, boasting millions of members, chapters in all 50 states, and the ear of the new president. Phyllis Schlafly might not be a household name these days, but she was the true architect and mastermind of the American culture wars. Bathroom bills, abortion, gay marriage, immigration, threats to suburbia, traditional values, activist judges, left-wing indoctrination in schools, the liberal media, all of it. Most of those things barely registered as national issues until she repurposed them into identitarian deal-breakers. She understood long before anyone else that if you want struggling, working-class folks to support tax cuts for the rich, you've got to give them a simple binary choice that isn't really a choice at all. Vote for us, or you vote for the devil. The ERA's ratification deadline came and went in 1982, and the amendment never hit the 38-state threshold. It failed. And the feminists watched in horror as much of what they'd built and accomplished in their decades of work was trampled beneath the spit-shined quaff of a new American morning. For our money, no one aside from Goldwater and Reagan were as instrumental in the creation of the modern American right as Phyllis Schlafly. She still doesn't get the credit she truly deserves for it, though. You know, being a woman and all. Fun fact, Schlafly was Margaret Atwood's primary inspiration for the character Serena Joy in her 1985 novel The Handmaid's Tale. Atwood said she wrote the character as a warning to the women in Schlafly's movement. Be careful what you wish for. The dawn of the Reagan era saw us out of stagflation, albeit at a steep price we're only now beginning to grapple with. But the economy wasn't the only source of anxiety in a country that was growing exponentially and diversifying just as fast. The liberation movement was ushering women into the workforce in record numbers, and dual-income households were well on their way to becoming the new normal. For moral conservatives, the traditional family structure was the very foundation on which all things were built, including, and especially, the Christian capitalist hegemony they'd long taken for granted. In time, the Lord returns all things to the dust, but they'd be damned darned if they were just going to stand by and watch while the agents of Satan's social progress laid siege to God's shining city on the hill. But declaring a full frontal assault on their enemies wouldn't be Christ-like, and it probably wouldn't work. So instead, they took the Schlafly approach, cherry-pick, co-opt, and corrupt, and make it all about the children. The poor, innocent children being abandoned by the thousands day after day in daycares all over this fine country. 
Also, these so-called liberated women can pursue their unnatural ambitions and trade their very soul and salvation for a paycheck. And for what? For pride? For greed? The free market has blessed us with the greatest vacuum cleaners the world has ever known. But it's never enough for these heedless strumpets and Jezebels. That vacuum cleaner thing is an actual Schlafly argument, by the way. Lord have mercy they hand over their precious little angels to these people they wouldn't know from Adam. These daycare takers could be Lucifer in the flesh for all they know. God help us, some of these places even hire men. Men to mind the children. And what kind of a man wants to be around children all day? Oh, I think you know. I think you know exactly what kind of man. The belief that gay men were inherently pedophiles was just as pervasive as it is fucking evil. And the daycare industry boom happened to coincide with the rise of the gay rights movement and the beginning of the horrific AIDS epidemic, better known at the time as GRIDS, Gay-Related Immunodeficiency Syndrome, which moral conservatives, including Ronald Reagan, believed was spiritual punishment for their sinful lifestyle and their lust for children. Which brings us to the unlikely cross-pollination between feminist activism and the anti-feminist backlash it sparked. Thanks to the tireless work of feminist child advocates, social work and child protection services had gone mainstream, and so had the awareness of child sexual abuse as an actual problem that deserved to be properly addressed. In 1980, those efforts helped secure mandatory reporting statutes and pushed law enforcement to finally take the crime seriously. But like we touched on in our episode, And I Will Go to Texas, the sudden and sensational media coverage of the crackdowns gave a whole lot of people the impression that there was an unprecedented epidemic of pedophilia in America. The good news was that people were finally coming around to the feminist call to believe those who report sexual abuse, rather than dismissing or admonishing them. But before the idea could find its place in mainstream culture, it had to be filtered through a ringer of reductionist media soundbites and telephone game interpretations. And by the time it emerged on the other side, Believe the Victim had mutated into Believe Children Because They Don't Lie, Can't Lie, Can't Make Up Stories, and Can't Regurgitate Whatever They Hear The Adults Around Them Say. And if you've ever met a child, you know that that's patently absurd. This is why we can't have nice things, and why sometimes the road to Salem is paved in good intentions. It was only a matter of time before the stray cigarette butt of American paranoia touched off a five-alarm moral panic. And in a sickly perfect stroke of irony, that ignition spark of the cultural bonfire would be a book. In 1980, psychiatrist Lawrence Pazder and his patient-turned-wife, Michelle Smith, published what they purported to be a memoir recounting Michelle's experiences, escape, and eventual recovery from a life of unimaginable abuse at the hands of a satanic cult. The book was called Michelle Remembers, and it reads like Christian pop-lit torture porn, complete with graphic depictions of blood orgies, magic rituals, and human sacrifices. So naturally, it was a hit. Pastor and Smith claim that Anton LaVey's Church of Satan was a centuries-old international cabal responsible for Michelle's systematic torture and that of countless other victims. Never mind that the Church of Satan was only 11 years old at that point, folks still found the yarn believable. After all, LaVey's edgelord antics often made the news back then, and since no one bothered to look into it beyond a passing glance, he ironically lent a kernel of truth and legitimacy to the festering fear of widespread satanic cults. Pazder was an ardent proponent of recovered memory therapy, and claimed to have used hypnosis to access Michelle's long-repressed memories as the prisoner of this diabolical cult. 
The book catapulted the once fringe practice into the spotlight and gave his fellow believers in the mental health field something they could hold up as evidence that they'd been right all along. But more importantly, for our story at least, Pazder fused recovered memory therapy with what would come to be known as Satanic Ritual Abuse, or SRA, a catch-all term for any physical, mental, emotional, or sexual abuse allegedly perpetrated by a Satanic cult. This was the first time most people had ever heard of recovered memory therapy or satanic ritual abuse, and once the concepts made their way into the news, they were cemented in people's minds as part and parcel to one another, if not interchangeable terms, and from that point on it's hard to find anyone talking about one without also implying the other. Within a month after the book's release, a British newspaper published a brutal, comprehensive takedown that even included a quote from Michelle's own father, describing it as, quote, The worst pack of lies a little girl could ever make up. The reporters interviewed Pazder and asked him, Does it matter if it's true? To which he replied, We're all eager to prove or disprove what happened, but in the end, it doesn't matter. Sadly, he was right. Dozens of psychologists and other experts debunked Michelle Remembers within days of it hitting the shelves, but Schlafly's culture wars were already beginning to chip away at the public's trust in science and expertise, things that fundamentalists saw as increasingly hostile threats. Besides, why should the opinions of critics matter more than the audience? And the vulture, excuse me, venture capitalists agreed. People don't want killjoy eggheads rattling off numbers and telling them how wrong and stupid and backward they are. No, people want to be angry and afraid. People want devils, and somebody's got to give the people what they want. Good ratings tend to come a whole lot cheaper than truth. Less than a year later, America was introduced to yet another media revolution, the launch of CNN and the birth of the 24-hour news cycle, with 16 hours left to fill. That's where commentators and analysts came in handy, and two of CNN's first paid contributors were Childress's own Lou Dobbs and the one and only Phyllis Schlafly. The media was crashing hard from William Deere's D&D mania, and they were dope sick for the next big score. Michelle Remembers turned out to be just the pure, uncut sensationalism they'd been begging for. It was a seemingly bottomless well of content for hard news and talk show fluff alike, and it was wholly caustic to any distinction there was between the two. All that free publicity made Michelle Remembers into a national bestseller and made its authors, Pazder and Smith, into highly sought-after experts on the epidemic of satanic ritual abuse, a concept which, again, they completely made up to sell books. And sell books they did. You remember that Satan seminar circuit we might have mentioned once or twice? Yeah, that was their idea. They embarked on a nationwide book tour that doubled as a traveling seminar to provide mental health workers and law enforcement with the knowledge and skills they needed to identify, treat, and prosecute SRA. And when it came time to direct attendees to the merch table for a copy of Michelle Remembers, they didn't present it as a memoir. They presented it as a textbook. The popularity of the book and seminars caused an explosion of interest in SRA and mental health circles, even among those who'd written off recovered memory years earlier. And despite the swelling ranks of its adherents, the therapy was just as polarizing as ever, and its supporters were still just as ardent, defensive, and deeply committed to proving themselves right. Some were so dedicated, they opened their own psychiatric wards exclusively for treatment of SRA victims, which, according to them, necessitated total isolation of the patients from their friends and family, cutting them off from anyone but the staff of SRA believers with no tolerance for doubt. You know, like a cult does. 
Thankfully, the wards were quickly shut down by a flurry of malpractice suits, and once the patients were transferred to actual professionals, their health quickly improved. Quote, Allegations of satanic rape and abuse normally ceased, recovered memories were identified as fabrications, and conventional treatments for presenting symptoms were generally successful. In other words, the best treatment for satanic ritual abuse was acknowledging that it doesn't fucking exist. A study conducted a decade later found that 95% of adult patients who claimed to be victims of SRA had no recollection of it until their therapist recovered their memories. And even more unsettling, the study also found that the more bizarre and severe a patient's allegations were, the more likely their therapist was to believe them. Some therapists even claimed to witness wounds appear and disappear on patients' bodies during hypnosis, like stigmata. That probably had a little something to do with the growing interest in psychotherapy among fundamentalist Christians. In a sense, they were already primed to believe that that kind of thing was possible. And since Christian patients tended to seek out Christian therapists, well, the feedback loops gotta eat. Christian therapists also led the charge to more liberally diagnose the rare and controversial condition that was known at the time as multiple personality disorder, or MPD. For them, it was a way to mesh science with demonic possession. The exorcist stuff didn't catch on with anyone else, but it didn't have to. Before long, multiple personality disorder, like recovered memories before it, became just another symptom of SRA. Now the cultists weren't just torturing and murdering people, they were brainwashing them and planting alternate personalities in their brains that only they could control. And God help us, they were doing it to our children. A moral panic had been brewing for more than a decade in the cauldron of pop psychology, politics, and plain old ignorance. And the long, slow political realignment was finally drawing to a close. All the ingredients were accounted for, every pillar in its place and the monsters were long overdue on Maple Street. The first incident happened, or more accurately, didn't happen, in Kern County, California in 1982. Quick caveat, we can't say for sure that it was the first to happen, just the first to get national media coverage. I mean, if a witch burns in the forest and there's no one around to get the ratings, did it even happen? Anyway. Two kids in Kern County, with ample coaching from their mentally ill step-grandmother, accused their parents and another couple of abusing them as part of a satanic pedophile cult. Despite there being no evidence whatsoever to support the allegations, all four defendants were convicted and their combined sentencing totaled more than 1,000 years in prison. They'd go on to serve 12 of those years before they were finally exonerated. The media circus surrounding the case followed Cohen's formula to a T. Media coverage defined the enemy, rumors and gossip widened the net, and paranoia went pandemic. Six more cases, with nearly the exact same storyline, cropped up in Kern County and ended with 26 people in prison for crimes that never even happened. And it's worth noting that shortly before all this started, county social workers attended a local SRA seminar and started using copies of Michelle Remembers as their training manuals. We have no way of knowing if that played any role in the allegations, but still, worth noting. Less than a year later, in 1983, a woman in Manhattan Beach, California named Judy Johnson told police that an employee at McMartin Preschool named Ray Bucky had sexually abused her three-year-old son, Billy. Obviously, it was a serious allegation, and the police were right to investigate it. But the nature of Johnson's claims probably should have been a red flag. When the police interviewed Billy, they showed him a class photo and asked him to identify Ray Bucky. He couldn't. The investigators described the boy as pre-verbal and unable to fully comprehend the word name. They still took his statement, though, and this is just a small sampling of what he told them. 
Billy said he was taken to a church where Ray Bucky dressed as Santa Claus put his finger in a goat's butthole while someone named Old Grandma played the piano. Ray's mother and the administrator of the school, Peggy Bucky, was there too, dressed as a witch. She murdered a baby, forced Billy to drink its blood, gave him a haircut, then locked him in a coffin, buried it, dug it up, put staples in his tongue, stabbed him in the eyes with scissors, then forced him to watch, presumably without eyes, while an elephant killed a lion. When his mom picked him up that afternoon, he neglected to mention any of this, and his eyes had grown back, I guess? A few days later, the preschool employees loaded him into a FedEx plane, which took him to Palm Springs for no apparent reason, then drove him back into town to an armory that had mysteriously appeared behind his mom's house, and it was full of uniformed soldiers chilling with a creature called the Goat Man while Ray Bucky flew around in the air like a witch. In case you were wondering, no, none of that actually happened. In reality, it was just a toddler's attempt to regurgitate his mother's delusions. Judy Johnson had a history of mental illness and severe alcoholism, and her report probably should have been interpreted as the obvious cry for help that it was, rather than a serious criminal allegation about Goatman and Flying Santas. But then again, the DA was facing a tough re-election bid that year. Despite the colorful nature of Johnson's accusations, the police took it seriously, and why shouldn't they? It was all clearly laid out in their new child abuse training manual, Michelle remembers. Ray Bucky was arrested the next day, and then released a few hours later for lack of evidence. The whole ordeal might have amounted to nothing had the chief of police not taken the, shall we say, ill-advised step of mailing letters to parents of over 200 children who'd attended the preschool over the years. Dear parent, the following procedure is obviously an unpleasant one. The letter informed them of Ray's arrest and strongly encouraged them to ask their kids about a list of graphically described sex acts, then fill out and return an enclosed questionnaire. We ask you to please keep this investigation strictly confidential because of the nature of the charges and the highly emotional effect it could have on our community. Please do not discuss this investigation with anyone outside your immediate family. Yeah, so that didn't happen. Manhattan Beach, California is about as far removed from Childress, Texas as you can get, but some things really are universal. The police department was swarmed by hundreds of panicked parents, many of whom had never even enrolled their kids in the preschool, they just heard about the letter secondhand. And the police had no idea how to deal with all these frightened and potentially traumatized kids, and according to some parent complaints, they were kinda rough with them. So the DA hired a private therapy group called the Children's Institute International, or CII, to conduct the interviews. The Institute's head psychotherapist, Key McFarlane, wasn't actually a psychotherapist. She was a social worker who didn't even have a license to practice therapy. But she did have friends in the DA's office. And besides, who needs a medical license when you're on the cutting edge of all the hottest therapy trends? McFarlane was a disciple of Dr. Roland C. Summit a psychiatrist specializing in child sexual abuse and a hugely influential figure in the fledgling SRA movement. Earlier that year, Summit had proposed something he called Child Sexual Abuse Accommodation Syndrome. Basically, the idea that a child's denial or retraction of SRA claims actually proved that the claims are true. It's an obvious catch-22 nonsense idea, but also the guiding principle of McFarland's Children's Institute. McFarlane also pioneered the technique of using anatomically correct dolls in child abuse cases, giving the world the show us on the doll meme, and believed that the best way to get children to overcome their so-called accommodation syndrome was to ask manipulative leading questions, and reward them with treats when they quote, got the answers right. I'm no expert or anything, but when you ask someone you've never met if they've been abused, I'm pretty sure there's not supposed to be a wrong answer. 
It's a perfect example of the twisted, self-contradictory worldview of McFarland and all the rest of the SRA true believers. As far as they were concerned, one must always believe the victim, but only when they tell you what you want to hear. Children can't lie, unless the cult programs them to lie. And in that case, McFarland and her band of lunatics believed it was fully within their rights, and in the child's best interest, to coerce, manipulate, and psychologically torture them until they get the answer right. And for the record, every single child they interviewed initially denied any abuse took place, until they met McFarlane. The truly heartbreaking part of it is that statistically speaking, at least a couple of these kids really had been victims of abuse, but not by Ray Bucky or some satanic cabal. It would almost certainly be at the hands of someone they loved and trusted, like a close relative or one of their own parents. McFarland's interviews may very well have been the best and only chance those kids ever had to escape that violence and bring their abusers to justice, but she squandered it to chase down imaginary devils and potentially re-traumatize the kids in the process. A child's brain starts to form what's called explicit memories, the kind adults have, around the age of two. But up until they're around seven, the majority of their memories are still implicit memories, meaning they're more like vague, momentary snapshots of emotion. Psychologists refer to it as childhood amnesia, and it's why we struggle to remember much from that time in our own lives, outside of those dreamlike Polaroid blurs of sensation and color. Like we said, it's not hard to plant false memories in others, especially if they're frightened toddlers. It would almost be impossible not to warp a child's implicit memory of real abuse when you're insisting over and over again that it wasn't their uncle or stepdad or whoever, but some random stranger. And not just any random stranger, but one who worships evil monsters and can fly like magic. Yeah, it's fucked up. And not just for the survivors of actual abuse, but also for the vast majority of kids who walked into McFarland's office without a care in the world and came out of it with hazy, deep-seated memories of sexual violence. Repetition turns lies into lived trauma, and some mistakes can't be undone. Most of these kids were just trying to give the adults what they wanted so they wouldn't get in trouble. You know, like kids do. And when they interacted with the creepy penis dolls, they were just playing with them, mashing them together like naked Barbies, like kids do. But in the minds of the mostly unqualified therapists, it was proof positive of something much darker. Of the 400 children they psychologically abused, uh, I mean interviewed, the Children's Institute determined that 359 of them were victims of SRA. According to their notes, the kids described countless incidents in great detail, many of which took place in secret underground passages hidden beneath the preschool. Kind of like steam tunnels. Or a pizza parlor basement. You know, I'm, I'm just spitballing here. The tunnels, by the way, also happened to be the name of the colorful rows of wooden boxes in the preschool's playground that kids could crawl around in. Guess that was just a coincidence. It was the beginning of Sweeps Month for TV ratings, and in the brave new world of cable news, local outlets needed a story juicy enough to compete. Reporters seized on the McMartin case and framed their coverage as though the abuse had definitely happened and Ray was undeniably guilty, playing up the grisly details and conveniently omitting any mention of old grandma and the goat man. They brought on Dr. Roland Summit as their go-to expert on the case, who ominously warned viewers that a protracted trial would allow dangerous rumors to spread and, quote, pit neighbor against neighbor, and he wasn't wrong about that. But his prescription was to rush straight to a guilty verdict without the burdensome trappings of a fair trial. Anyone who disagreed, he said, was putting children in danger. I believe we're dealing with no less than conspiracies 
Preschools in this country have become a ruse for larger, unthinkable networks of crime against children, which may have greater financial resources than the agencies trying to uncover them. It was tabloid trash and ratings gold. The national outlets followed the lead of their local counterparts and styled themselves as pro bono mouthpieces for the prosecution, tossing out all due diligence and any presumption of innocence in the process. The McMartin case became a national obsession, and whether it was the media's sensationalism feeding the explosion of rumors or the other way around, the chicken and or egg was coming home to roost all over the country. On March 22, 1984, Ray, Peggy, and five other McMartin employees were indicted on 115 charges of child sexual abuse. By the time a federal grand jury was brought in a few months later, that number had gone up to 397. The Children's Institute quickly cashed in on the news, launching a fundraiser that netted a cool 30 grand in donations. And not just from the pearl clutcher types, even Phyllis Schlafly's arch nemesis, Gloria Steinem, pitched in. Partly in reaction to the press coverage, Congress doubled its funding for child protection programs, the bulk of which was allocated to research on child sexual abuse, which sounds great on paper, but in practice, it meant dumping millions of dollars into the gym teacher's Satan seminar circuit. The resulting explosion of taxpayer-funded SRA training only served to further legitimize the panic, attract even more media attention, and spread even more disinformation. And worse, the conferences functioned like de facto workshops for SRA-believing prosecutors and therapists to share and refine their tactics for winning cases. Tactics like turning off the cameras when they interviewed children, destroying records, and hiding exculpatory evidence from the defense. Ethics, integrity, and constitutional rights are important and all, but please, think of the children. Dr. Summit penned an op-ed for the LA Times, urging parents to disregard what they hear from research professionals and scientists and instead put their trust in, quote, recycled social workers when it comes to SRA. He also gave a full-throated defense of the CII's interview tactics, calling them highly involved, intensely specific, and largely unknown outside of the specialty of child abuse diagnosis. In response, El Paso-based journalist Debbie Nathan called them technologically updated versions of the medieval preoccupation with scrutinizing female genitalia for signs of sin and witchcraft, and of 19th century forensic medical campaigns to detect promiscuity and homosexuality by examining the shapes of lips and penises. But, like we said, people want devils, not eggheads. America's newsstands have become a dark mosaic of cults, devils, and tortured children. Every milk carton was emblazoned with the photo of a missing kid, and all of that was set against the social backdrop of cocaine, crack, Ritalin, backmasked subliminal messages on Slayer albums, and the Marxist abomination that was Dolly Parton's 9 to 5. Daytime talk shows and nightly news specials like 2020 and 60 Minutes were platforming self-proclaimed SRA survivors non-stop, and publishers were cranking out an endless slew of phony memoirs. All of them shitty Michelle Remembers fan fiction, and most of them written by evangelical Christians pretending to be reformed Satanists for the money. What a way to make a living! And it was amid the miasma of this perfect cultural shitstorm that our favorite anti-dungeon crusader, Patricia Pulling, first teamed up with psychiatrist Thomas Radicke to form Bothered About Dungeons and Dragons. But we'll check in with them a little bit later. Acting on some terrible advice from McFarlane, the McMartin parents started driving their kids around town looking for other perpetrators. 
which quickly escalated into stalking and harassing local businesses, following suspicious vehicles around town, digging through people's garbage for clues and stealing their mail, doxing people they thought were cultists, and just all around doing their own research. They even presented the investigators on the case with a list of satanic pedophiles they'd uncovered, which included the entire 1984 roster of the Anaheim Angels. By March 1985, the parents had grown deeply frustrated by the slow, bureaucratic slog of the justice system, and decided to take their amateur, shadow investigation even further. They rallied a 50-person vigilante mob to swarm the preschool with shovels to dig for skeletons and subterranean torture tunnels. Rather than putting a stop to this very illegal effort, the DA joined in, hiring a backhoe and a professional archaeology team to excavate the property, all on the taxpayer's dime. To their surprise and disappointment, they, again, found nothing. While the parent posse was busy ransacking the town, Judy Johnson, the woman whose claims started this whole thing, was involuntarily hospitalized after suffering a psychotic break. Doctors diagnosed her with paranoid schizophrenia, which cast a little doubt on her otherwise totally believable claims about teleporting rape armories in her backyard. It shook the prosecution's faith, at least enough to drop all charges against five of the defendants. But when it came to Peggy and Ray Bucky, the same standard apparently didn't apply. They pressed on with the case and employed a tactic they picked up at their SRA workshops. They hid Judy's diagnosis from the defense, and later, the jury. But their ill-gotten star witness never made it to the stand. Judy Johnson drank herself to death six months before the trial even began. The preliminary hearings drug on for two years, and that left America with plenty of time to kill. By the time the opening statements were given in July 1987, the satanic panic was everywhere, and the discourse surrounding SRA was getting more and more conspiratorial. Social workers Carol and Brad Darling told their lecture attendees and grand juries alike that SRA was rooted in an ancient plot orchestrated by a powerful satanic world order that was dispatching its cultists to infiltrate every city in America, even towns as small as Childress. They look just like us, you know. They could be anyone. And they're already here. When the McMartin trial started, at least 40 people were already serving time in prison for SRA-related crimes, and close to 100 preschools had been hit with similar allegations. Daycares and preschools across America shut their doors, some due to SRA charges leveled against them, others out of an abundance of caution, believing it was better to preemptively abandon their livelihoods than to risk becoming the next witch on trial. Dr. Roland Summit, meanwhile, was riding high on tabloid stardom and sinking deep into the conspiracist swamp. Seeing is believing, he told the cameras. If I hadn't have believed it, I wouldn't have seen it. Besides, if Judy Johnson was so crazy, how could she have driven more rational people than herself into a hysterical witch hunt? Hmm, how indeed. SRA skeptics who demand proof, he said, are at best in a state of denial. At worst, they're co-conspirators, cultists, and quote, enemy agents of disinformation. The SRA wing of the mental health community agreed, and their paranoia quickly trickled down to everyone else through the worst of tabloid television. Speaking of Geraldo Rivera, in 1987, the McMartin parent posse joined Charles Manson in the all-star guest lineup of Geraldo's primetime NBC special, Devil Worship, Exposing Satan's Underground. It was panned by critics, and even Tom Brokaw, the network's star anchor, called it troubling quasi-news that cheapens the whole network's reputation. But the viewers tuned in, 20 million of them in fact, one third of everyone who was watching TV in America that night. 
Estimates are there are one million Satanists in this country. The majority of them are linked in a highly organized, very secret network. The odds are this is happening in your town. If you've already listened this far into the series, you know that's some real stinky BS. And paying Geraldo Rivera money for literally anything should be a federal crime. But we can't overstate just how impactful Geraldo's nonsense was. It was like a primetime infomercial for mass hysteria, broadcast to three million more televisions than the finale of Game of Thrones. If there was anyone left in America who hadn't heard that Satanists were coming for their children, they heard it from Geraldo. Every time exposing Satan's underground or one of its countless knockoffs aired on TV, law enforcement would be immediately flooded with fresh SRA allegations. A study found that 58% of all SRA claims ever reported were made within three years of the Geraldo Show's debut. And if you combine that with the 34% of claims that were made after an SRA seminar was held somewhere nearby, you'd get 92% of all SRA claims, ever. What a coincidence. Trust the supplement payment plan! Geraldo Rivera was the ultimate super spreader of Satan's viral load, and within months, allegations were cropping up in Canada, the UK, Australia, and other English-speaking countries around the globe. And the moral majority was doing their part too, exploiting SRA to further their political aims. Preachers throughout the country were spreading Falwell's SRA gospel from the pulpit, and churches were hosting fear-mongering seminars like the one that happened in Childress. Televangelists, social workers, therapists, and police even handed out free bootleg copies of the Geraldo special to raise awareness and demonstrate the so-called validity of their claims. Los Angeles police orchestrated raids on dozens of daycares and preschools throughout the city and county, finding nothing and leaving hundreds of destroyed lives and reputations in their wake. But the allegations just kept rolling in. It was self-perpetuating. The more media coverage the allegations got, the more were made, and the more allegations were made, the more coverage they got. But the ratings just kept rolling in. Oprah Winfrey capped off her own streak of SRA sensationalism by hosting Michelle Smith as a legit survivor and expert nearly a decade after she'd first been discredited. And by then, no reasonable person could possibly look at the evidence and believe a word Smith had to say. But Oprah was bigger than reason. Just ask the FBI, who suddenly found themselves drowning in reports from people claiming to be escapees from devil cults, each trying to outdo the last for a chance to meet Oprah. Everyone was cashing in. The Children's Institute racked up more than 20 million in government grants before they were finally discredited. Say what you will about the good Reverend Mather, at least he was working pro bono. The co-authors of Michelle Remembers both worked as paid consultants on the McMartin trial. And by 1990, Pastor's resume would include more than 1,000 similar SRA cases, all of them derivatives of his own lies, bootleg copies of copies of his own homemade bullshit, each leaving behind dozens of shattered lives and thousands of dollars in his pocket. But the money just kept rolling in. The McMartin jurors finally reached a verdict in January of 1990, and thankfully, they weren't buying into the bullshit. In a statement, they chastised the conduct of the police and slammed CII's interviews as, quote, leading, suggestive, and worthless. The jury was ultimately hung on Ray, but they acquitted Peggy on all charges. That, of course, didn't go over too well with the parent posse. The McMartin families and their legions of supporters were outraged that the system had failed them and allowed these monsters to walk free. In response, they launched a nonprofit fundraising group that organized protests in downtown Los Angeles, drawing hundreds into the streets, chanting and shouting and carrying signs. 
demanding justice and calling for the heads of the satanic pedophile cabal who were abducting and murdering innocent children by the hundreds of thousands every single year. Why does the government stand by and do nothing? Why does the mainstream media hide the truth from the people? Why won't somebody please think of the children? because they're all part of it, that's why. But we know their secret, we know the dark truths that all you mediocre nobodies are too brainwashed and boring and average to even comprehend. As long as they're devils pulling the strings and levers of power, we will be heroes. As long as they're devils, we can still be heroes. We can only be heroes as long as they're devils. Sorry, what was I saying? Oh yeah, so the McMartin parents called their new organization Believe the Children. I feel like I saw something about that on Facebook recently. Nah, the totally different thing. Huh, guess it was just a coincidence. The McMartin preschool trial would end up spanning seven years and costing the taxpayers 15 million, making it the longest and costliest criminal case in American history. The wrongfully accused defendants were bankrupted by the legal fees, lost their business, and spent the better part of a decade in prison for crimes that weren't even physically possible. Eventually, the LA Times and other outlets would express regret for their journalistic malpractice, but the damage was already done, and no one, it seems, learned anything. Cohen notes in his research that folk devils are almost always a paradox. Like how James Dallas Egbert III and every other D&D player that got caught up in Bad's Crusade was simultaneously perceived as a mentally gifted genius and a mentally feeble rube, brainwashed by a board game. And we'd argue that the same is true of all the moral entrepreneurs who hitched a ride to personal gain on the devil's ragged coattails. They fight their enemies by engaging in the very same behavior they condemn them for, becoming the funhouse mirror image of the very things they hate and fear, and they owe their fame, fortune, and power to the existence of the very things they seek to destroy. Without a folk devil, the folk angel is just another mediocre nobody. It's kind of like the Joker-Batman dichotomy. If Joker didn't exist and Batman was just beating the shit out of random people because he hates himself, even their messaging is a paradox. Laycock summed up Bad's positions pretty well, writing, quote, If players believe magic is real, they are delusional and have been deceived by the game. But if they believe magic is not real, they are in spiritual danger and have been deceived by Satan. It's a self-sealing and self-reinforcing delusion, and it's the same warped psychology that undergirds conspiracy theories and makes them so difficult and frustrating to debunk. Only a witch denies the existence of witches, and only witches deny being a witch. We forgot to mention in part one that the lead designer of Dungeons and Dragons, Gary Gygax, was a practicing Christian, like obnoxiously so. Lawful good paladins were very much his thing. In fact, he made a point to include Christian symbols and biblical references in nearly every aspect of the game. But when Bad and their acolytes saw elements of their own faith on the pages of a D&D book, they interpreted them as the iconography of Satan. As Laycock put it, quote, the realization that a game of imagination can resemble a religion naturally leads to the suspicion that one's religion could likewise be a game of imagination. From Salem's Puritans to Reaganomics, there's always been this cultural assumption that imagination is unproductive and therefore a waste of time, if not morally dangerous. Idle hands, after all, are the dungeon master's playground. Ironically, it takes a lot of imagination to conjure demonic horrors and bloodthirsty cultists from shadows on the wall of your local laundromat, or to divine sinister cryptograms from random coincidences, 
or to fabricate memories of torment so vivid you convince yourself they're real, and convince your therapist too, and the cops, and the judges, the president, even Oprah. There's not a lot of magic in the world these days, and for most of us, our lives aren't all that epic of an adventure. Most of us are mediocre nobodies in need of the occasional escape, and we all have a little imagination in us whether our bosses and priests like it or not. We all engage in play, too, in some form or another. Not just as kids, but throughout our entire lives. Whether it's D&D, sports, or drum circles. It's a major part of our development and mental health that helps us form and strengthen our bonds with other humans. Imagination and play are just as hardwired into us as fight or flight. But if being on the right side of culture requires suppression of imagination and play, our brains still have to find a way to express them, and it can get very, very dark. Laycock calls it corrupted play. The idea that moral entrepreneurs and their followers are engaged in imaginative play just like everyone else, but they're unable or willing to acknowledge what it is. They take the game so seriously it ceases to be a game. And in their interactions with the world, they're forcing everyone else to play it with them, whether they want to or not. To be a hero in the real world requires effort, work, and sacrifice. But in the world of corrupted play, all you have to do is proclaim your special secret knowledge and declare everyone else a witch. It's the path of least resistance to heroism and self-esteem. But once the dragon is slain, the hero's services are no longer required, and the same applies if the dragon turns out to have been a delusion all along. Victory and defeat have the same endgame, obsolescence, a return to anonymous mediocrity. And to the moral entrepreneurs, that isn't an option. Their goal isn't to win the game. It's to keep playing no matter the cost. As the Reagan era drew to a close, the tide of fundamentalist fervor receded with it. The moral majority was bleeding money, and Jerry Falwell formally disbanded the group in 1989, proclaiming, Our goal has been achieved. And then, we assume, grabbed the collection plates and ran. As for Patricia Pulling, it was very bad timing. Oof, yikes. Sorry, not sorry. She just published a book called The Devil's Web, Who is Stalking Your Children for Satan? And she was enjoying the kind of airtime and notoriety that most moral entrepreneurs could only dream of. Unfortunately for her, the ghosts of her past were coming back to haunt her, and this time, they were old enough to vote. Gamers who spent their teen years being demonized and persecuted by bad were now legal adults, and in 1988, they formed an organization called the Committee for the Advancement of Role-Playing Games, or CARPGA, as a legal and personal support network for gamers victimized during the panic, and they had their sights set on taking down bad once and for all. CARPGA tried lobbying government officials and law enforcement, and they managed to get support from Texas Democratic Senator Lloyd Benson, but it quickly became clear that the proper channels were getting them nowhere fast. So instead, they went DIY and got real punk rock about it. Even Monopoly is more wicked than D&D. The goal is to take everyone's money and thereby demoralize everyone else and be the richest and only person left owning any property. Hell yeah. CARPGA activists spoke out in magazines like Dragon and organized gamers at conventions and comic stores, forming a nationwide grassroots movement that schools, police, and media couldn't ignore. And by weaponizing parody and satire, they were able to use Bad's own words against them and turn their folk devil subversion narrative on its head. One of the principal things that makes the baddies bad is their total contempt for law and their campaign to subvert the police into being accomplices in their crimes. These people are a bunch of cultists dedicated to undermining freedom and destroying traditional values. 
And that wasn't just hyperbole. Alongside their popular checklist and other literature, Bad was distributing secret booklets exclusive to police and went to great lengths to hide it. So much so that CARPGA and other activists had to find cops on the inside who played D&D and were willing to risk their jobs to leak the booklets. According to Laycock, police departments all over the country were coordinating with BAD in their efforts to crack down on occult crime and a real-life conspiracy to keep the communities they serve from finding out that their local police were, quote, involved in organized attacks on innocent citizens. Bad tipped off the cops that CARPGA was sniffing around for the secret booklets, so whenever someone called asking about them, the police would report them to Bad. When the activists finally managed to get their hands on one of the booklets, it was full of top-secret damning facts like, in some games, rolling for character stats requires three dice, making it possible for players to roll a 666. <laughs> Activists also dug into Bad's so-called research and found that their infamous list of D&D-related suicides included duplicate cases, and the news articles had been physically cropped with scissors to remove any details that contradicted their narrative. One of the clippings was literally taken from an issue of the Weekly World News, the absurdist joke tabloid they used to sell in the grocery store checkout lines. Full disclosure, Batboy and Pilod the UFO Alien are both paid contributors to Tex Arcana. CARPGA also teamed up with Dungeon Magazine to publicly expose the anti-Semitic, anti-Catholic, and otherwise racist, sexist, and authoritarian backgrounds of prominent figures in the SRA movement, including our old pal, Jack Chick. But the man who drove the final nail into Bad's coffin was game designer and activist Mike Stackpole. In 1989, at the height of Patricia Pulling's 15 minutes of fame, Stackpole published an essay called Game Hysteria and the Truth, a detailed rebuttal to all the misinformation, omissions, and lies of Bad and the other anti-game crusaders. A year later, he published The Pulling Report, focused exclusively on Bad and calling out Pulling for her phony credentials. As he put it, quote, Clearly, Pat Pulling is a cult crime expert only in her own eyes and those of her cronies, allies, and disciples. Barry Goldwater once said, Extremism and the defense of liberty is no vice. Call back. The extremism connected with the battle against the satanic conspiracy is defending no liberty. Fanaticism such as that which perpetuates a hysterical fantasy is nothing short of pure evil. The only greater evil is to do nothing to share the truth with those who might be misled by Mrs. Pulling. As far as games are concerned, Patricia Pulling is the Exxon Valdez of ignorance. She's full of it, she's leaking it all over, and it's left to the rest of us to clean it up. Damn. Patricia Pulling resigned from BAD shortly after the report came out, and the organization quickly fell apart without her. In his research on the subject, Dr. David Waldron said he couldn't find a single article about the evils of D&D in any mainstream outlet after 1992. The war on RPGs was over. Mostly. Well, you'll, you'll see in part four. As the new fundamentalist revival packed up its tents and the federal agencies turned their attention to some other folk devils down in Waco, the more decentralized, secular wing of SRA – therapists, social workers, prosecutors, cops – picked up the reins and gave the movement a more worldly rebranding. They dropped the S from SRA to science it up a bit and made a point to emphasize that the cultists weren't actual minions of Satan who harvest child blood for world domination. They were just delusional wackos who harvest child blood for world domination. I mean, please, we're not just some religious nutjobs. The secularization of the movement may have given God the boot, from the marketing department at least, but hysteria abhors a vacuum. In the absence of a divine plan, the demonic agenda was up for a big promotion. The SRA movement wasn't losing its religion so much as it was converting to a new faith, and the Church of Conspiracism 
welcomed them with open arms. Speaking at an SRA conference in 1989, Dr. Roland Summit told the crowd, quote, Eccentric, alienated, unsocialized, and paranoid personality types are needed to ferret out allegations of child sexual abuse in the face of lack of evidence in conventional, well-socialized parents and professionals. It takes somebody paranoid to continue to express suspicion and to take the child from doctor to doctor until someone confirms that maybe there was abuse. He went on to say that thanks to his special, unique logic, his word, not ours, he was able to deduce that when it came to the global satanic pedo cabal, the lack of proof is proof that the conspirators are super good at covering their tracks with paralyzing confusion and mind control, and warned the audience to stay paranoid because his phones were being tapped and satanic snipers were following him everywhere he went. That same year, psychologist Richard Cluft declared all medical professionals who were still skeptical of SRA to be the moral equivalent of, quote, good Germans during the Holocaust. And that seems like a perfect segue to Dr. Cory Don Hammond, a Utah-based psychologist and esteemed expert on recovered memory therapy, as seen on TV's Exposing Satan's Underground. Fans of the show, this one, not, not Geraldo's, might remember his brief shout out in our episode, And I Will Go to Texas, somewhere between the Manson murders and David Koresh. Hammond, unfortunately, had a lot of credibility among psychotherapists and social workers, thanks to his work in the field of hypnosis, and he'd cultivated something of a, well, cult following. Despite, or maybe because of, his proclivity for handing out stacks of fake CIA documents about an SRA-themed spin-off of MKUltra, which was very real, called Project Monarch. Which is so not real that even conspiracy theorists call it a conspiracy theory. But Hammond's magnum opus is the Green Bomb speech that he gave at a 1992 SRA conference. There's a video of the whole thing on YouTube if you want to check it out. We post the link on our Facebook, but, well, you'll see. He began his address to a room full of mental health students and fledgling professionals with a paranoid rant about the terrible risk he's taking by speaking publicly and how brave he was for doing it anyways. As Laycock notes in his book, it's a common trope among satanic conspiracy theorists to present themselves as, quote, larger-than-life figures who face danger at every turn from Satanists who are attempting to silence them for speaking out. And like his antecedents, Hammond, too, struggled to decide if he was a savior or a victim, but was always willing to split the difference and become a martyr. To hell with them, he told the audience. If they kill me, they kill me. They didn't. This episode is almost as long as Hammond's speech, so for our collective time and our sanity, we're going to skip over the first half and instead give you this quote from a lawyer who worked with Hammond on a trial. That guy's a legitimate nut job. Yep, that about covers that. The only reason anyone remembers the Green Bomb speech is because of its titular conspiracy theory, which goes a little something like this. In the 1940s, a young Hasidic Jewish man in Germany Damn it, here we go. managed to escape the death camps by giving Nazi scientists the secrets of the Kabbalah in exchange for his life. The young man's name was Greenbaum, and he apparently doesn't have a first name. After the war, the U.S. government brought Nazi scientists to American military bases to work on covert projects. Which did actually happen, so there's your kernel of truth. And they brought Greenbaum with them. 
and oh yeah, they were all Satanists, by the way. So anyway, the US put them all to work on Project Monarch, replicating their mind control experiments from the death camps. In the years that followed, Greenbaum got a degree in psychiatry and rose up to the top of the ranks in the worldwide satanic hierarchy, becoming a super wealthy Jewish puppet master with complete control over the world's governments and financial institutions. Ever since then, his cabal has been kidnapping toddlers by the thousands and subjecting them to what Hammond calls programming. Prolonged torture sessions, both physical and mental, involving special photic simulation devices that are, quote, not unlike the goggles that are now available through Sharper Image, referring, of course, to the store in the mall where you can buy Trump steaks and vibrating chairs. The purpose of the programming was to induce multiple personality disorder and create what he called alters, alternate personalities that serve specialized functions for the cult and could be used to control the child's body at their whim. Alters could have completely different physiologies from the child, including different eye colors and scars. Secular therapists who believed in stigmata called it body memories. The idea that memories, especially dark ones, were literally burned into the cells of the body. The concept was popularized by Michelle Remembers. Repetition turns horseshit into textbooks. Somewhere in the middle of whatever that was, he dropped this hot take. People who believe ritual abuse is not real are either naive, like the people who didn't believe in the Holocaust, or they're dirty. Cool, cool, okay. So why were the satanic ruling elites doing this anyway? My best guess, he said, is that they want an army of Manchurian candidates, tens of thousands of mental robots who will do prostitution, engage in child pornography, smuggle drugs, engage in international arms smuggling, snuff films, all sorts of lucrative things robots who will do their bidding. And eventually, the megalomaniacs at the top believe they will create a satanic order that will rule the world. Stop us if, uh, wait, where have I heard this before? It's probably safe to assume that this is the first time you've ever heard Dr. Corey Hammond's green bomb theory. But at the same time, it's not, is it? Because it's not his story. It's a shitty junior novelization of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which, again, was a hoax. The text itself was plagiarized from a satirical French play that had nothing to do with Jews, but the story of the Protocols was kinda unique. It was the first time anyone had fused together two distinct and much older conspiracy theories. The 18th century belief that secret societies like the Freemasons and Illuminati were plotting to take over the world and rule it as a new world order, and blood libel. The belief, dating all the way back to the year 30 CE, that Jews liked to murder Christian children to harvest their blood for rituals. And that fusion theory quickly snowballed through the 20th century, picking up bits and pieces of other theories as it went. Henry Ford serialized it and Adolf Hitler turned it into Mein Kampf, until the war ended and anti-Semitism went out of style. So it was rebranded as cultural Marxism, where it careened across McCarthy's Senate floor and into the John Birch Blue Book before tumbling into Phyllis Schlafly's garage, slurping up segregation and miscegenation as it rolled through the churches and across the TV screens, flinging adaptations, sequels, rip-offs, and reboots in all directions from Jack Check to Glenn Beck to the collected microfiction of 8chan filtered through Facebook to Newsmax before crashing through the doors of the White House press briefing room and landing on the Resolute desk. You've heard this one before because it's not just a one-off aberration, it's an American tradition. The tools of conquest do not necessarily come with bombs and explosions and fallout. There are weapons that are simply thoughts, attitudes, prejudices, to be found only in the minds of men. For the record, prejudices can kill, and suspicion can destroy, and a thoughtless frightened search for a scapegoat has a fallout all its own for the children and the children yet unborn. 
and the pity of it is that these things cannot be confined to the Twilight Zone. This is a cautionary tale about a cycle we seem doomed to repeat yet again, a recurring nightmare coming to you live from the last calm and reflective moment before the monsters came. There's the signpost up ahead. Our next stop, the city of Austin, Texas. But for real this time, we, we promise. To be continued. Tex Arcana is written and produced by us, Ryan Sheffield and Brad Dewar, recorded here in beautiful Denton, Texas. This show is made possible by Jake Jernigan, Tim Lane Propstrup, Matt Fjordbach, Zach Wayne, Sean Treat, Elizabeth Yang, Volt Ron, and our other generous supporters on Patreon. The more support we can get, the more and the faster Tex Arcana we can make. Music by Whiskey Folk Ramblers. We'll be back very soon with part four of three, the conclusion. But for real this time. Now get look here, folks. Trust the plan. <laughs> Come trust. on, trust the... Hey, just trust the supplement payment plan. We'll see you in Austin. And thanks for listening. Soros! Soros!